Are you ready for good talk? Welcome to your Friday. This is the uh, Good Talk episode, the Friday episode of The Bridge. Chantelle Bear, Bruce Anderson are both here. I'm Peter Mansbridge. And uh, as we always do on Fridays, we've got lots to talk about. We're going to talk, for starters, about somebody who's was supposedly from the past, a voice from the past, but really he's very much a voice of the future um, and the present. Because we're talking about Aaron O'Toole, the former leader of the Conservative Party. This is the one-year anniversary, actually, this week, of his departure from that leadership role. And uh, he, he signaled that anniversary with a bit of a bang, giving an interview to uh, Politico. And some of the stuff in this interview is, is quite reflective of what he thinks he went through in the final days, months, as leader of the Conservative Party. He still sits in the caucus. He still is a member of parliament. Here's what he said about the split in his in his caucus during the election campaign. Okay, I'm just going to read two sentences here, two or three sentences. There was a section that went right down the rabbit hole of COVID. Ivermectin, remember that? That was a what, it was a horse drug or something. The whole nine yards, he says. I'd always try to inspire and convince, but in some cases that was not possible. If some people have a bit of an agenda or want to be at the epicenter of power and they don't think they are, their ambition may eclipse the well-being of the team. I was the lumberjack. I love this, this last sentence here. I was the lumberjack riding down the river but on two logs. And over time, the logs were getting further apart. And I was trying desperately to keep them from getting too far apart. Not just for me to stay dry, but because I do worry about the increasing kind of, whether you call it polarization, whether you call it division, that we're seeing not just within the country, but within parties, organizations, and businesses. Well, that's quite a condemnation of the supposed tight team that uh, is supposed to operate during election campaigns. I mean, we saw some of this, we talked about some of this during the campaign, but a year later for him to be that descriptive... Well, you wonder why. What's what's the end game here, Chantel? Why don't you start? No, well, I think as as any previous leader, uh, Mr. O'Toole is uh, has more freedom uh, to speak his mind uh, than uh, the average MP. It's rare, but not uh, unheard of for a former leader to run again. Andrew Scheer is a case in point. He doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Stockwell Day, who was the leader of the Canadian Alliance, stuck around and became a a minister in uh, Stephen Harper's government. Whether Mr. O'Toole will run again and would have uh, an interesting spot in Pierre Poilievre's cabinet. The jury is out on that. Uh, but I I found the interview interesting and and also what it didn't say. Uh, and I'll come to your lumberjack image or his. Aaron O'Toole's real history is that he, he, he jumped on one log to become the leader of the party and then tried to jump on another, the more centrist log, which is where he was in his comfort zone, to be uh, truthful, after he was leader. The problem is, and you'll remember Brian Mulroney sang on that, uh, in politics you dance with the ones who brought you to the ball. (laughs) And Mr. O'Toole was uh, brought to to this dance uh, by dancing partners that uh, were not the right ones in his mind, at least, uh, to win an election and to win over centrist voters. So, yes, he ended up straddling both, but in the end, it wasn't just that he was straddling both. It it became a question of who he really was, Uh, and that is a problem. You have to be, at some point, people have to know who you are, and he seemed to be able to bend uh, to the wind uh, on on more occasions than most leaders of the opposition uh, will do. As for the rabbit hole uh, theory, I believe he's right. The conservatives have more people who have gone down that rabbit hole, and I would argue that many of them are still there. Bruce? 
well, I think it was a very useful contribution for Mr. O'Toole. My own interpretation of it is it's the kind of thing that you say just before in in an interview that you give just before the interview you you give saying you're leaving politics. I I saw some quote in there. I think about you didn't know whether or not his time in politics would be over in ten days or ten years. If you put that kind of time frame on it and include ten days as an option, it, it is signaling to some degree that it might be ten days or a matter of days rather than a matter of years. Um, and I also think that he's describing. I, I think there are two things that stood out for me. One is that he's describing a problem that exists within the Republican Party in the United States that uh, befell uh, Jason Kennedy's leadership in the uh, in Alberta, and that is a, a problem for the Canadian Conservative Party, uh, which is that there is a segment of the party, the first twenty percent of their current thirty-seven percent vote, if you like which is pretty far to the right of where most mainstream Canadian voters are and has become more heavily influenced by conspiracy theories of one sort or another, whether it's COVID related or something else, and um, is kind of disinterested in the idea of uh, finding uh, a bigger tent or creating a bigger tent or creating uh, bonds of agreement or compromise with a larger cohort. And that that is a, uh, a real challenge uh, for some of these conservative parties. Now, I happen to think that Doug Ford has managed it differently and well. And I think the thing that that Aaron O'Toole and Jason Kenney have in common, and this is to to Chantal's point a little bit, is that both of them signed up for the two log ride, uh, and in a way, they were nurturing the two log party. Um, they chose one path when it seemed like the path necessary to get them to the, you know, to use the American vernacular, the primary, the nomination, the leadership. And then they thought that they had the political gifts and the skill set that would allow them to pivot, bring their party along with them and appeal to more people. And, uh, you know, it's a dilemma. I mean, I think that it's probably necessary to, if the conservative parties are going to become more mainstream competitive, then it's necessary for both those factions to find some common ground. But I think both Kenny and, and Aaron O'Toole have proven that it's a lot easier to think about uh, and to imagine in a strategic back room than it is to execute. Uh, and they haven't. Uh, and, and so partly Aaron O'Toole was saying this was his failure. Um, and I appreciated that he said that because I think uh, too often uh, that's not said. He was he did blame some factions of um, people who were out of power, uh, and I think those were th th those were fair comments. But that is that is true of almost every leader that gets ousted in any party. And you know, to a degree, with every party, as you say, any party, because all you know, all parties generally speaking, have, you know, these differences within the parties, left and right usually, is what it is, and, and sometimes those come to a head in a, in a big argument. This was this was different. I mean, this basically ruined their campaign, or at least Aaron O'Toole thinks it, it did. When you look at the Conservative Party today, Chantal, um, how much of the two-log theory still exists? Um. It's it's still there, but uh, I think uh, Pierre Poilier, for all of his polarizing campaign, still did not play one log against the other uh, in the way that Aaron O'Toole did, uh, and is in a better place to uh, recast the priorities of the party along mainstream lines, i.e., in this case, the economy. Uh, I, I note that uh, he did not... Uh, give much of a nod, for instance, to uh, the religious right uh, segment of the conservative movement, a significant uh, segment. And I also note that most of the MPs who identify with that segment actually back Pierre Poiliev, but I don't get the sense that there was a quid pro quo, uh, elect me and I'm going to, to, to go after those issues that are dear to you. To go back to Mr. O'Toole, the fact is that if he had wanted to be 
the leader that he tried to be in the election campaign, he would have had to secure a mandate to be that person in the leadership campaign. And I, I go back to Stephen Harper, ran against Stockwell Day for the leadership of the Canadian Alliance. That was the beginning of his ascent as eventually the conserva- the leader of a united conservative party. Stockwell Day, a, a, a candidate of the religious right, the anti-abortion movement, uh, etc., a friend of that family. And Stephen Harper campaigned in that first campaign by telling members, if you pick me, I am not going to be pursuing those battles. That is not what we will be doing. And by winning that leadership, got himself a mandate based on reality, not on a wink and a nod, uh, and we'll see once I'm prime minister. And that served them well, really well, in subsequent battles uh, on the larger election battlefield. So if you're not going to get that mandate, or if you get, I would argue, Aaron O'Toole, uh, won that leadership uh, on false pretense in the sense that the person that campaigned was not the person that he was politically. Uh, and and, and that is... climate change, would you say, especially on climate change, that was... Uh, in on climate change, but also, I mean, he 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 self he he presented himself as not being Peter McKay. Try, frankly, if I put Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole side by side I, politically, I would find twins, almost Siamese twins, on positions. But that is not the campaign that Aaron O'Toole. He didn't present himself as a better Peter McKay. He presented himself as the anti. Uh, Peter McKay, him thinking that Peter McKay was a soft conservative and he wasn't. The fact is they're both the same. On this, the criticism that uh, that uh, Aaron O'Toole was a, 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 a red Tory or somewhere close to that family was totally founded. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is if you showed up in blue clothing and you were hiding red clothes under all of that for the entire time that you were saying, elect me because I'm blue. Look, because it's Friday, and I know that you're a generous soul on Friday, especially, um, I just want to take one issue with one thing that you said and and, and see if it resonates with you. Um, Caution, listeners and viewers. Yeah. Bruce is entering the Chantel <laughs> zone. This, is, this is, can always here. be dangerous. I, I understand. But, you know, the point that you made about Pierre Polyev and how he campaigned, I, I do remember some of the ways in which he characterized Jean Charest's uh, candidacy. And I thought it was a bit running against the other side of the party, the other log, if you like. Um, now, I do think to his credit, in terms of the strategy, the acumen, he stopped doing it as soon, almost as soon as he won. And he's been working at repairing those, and his appointments to his shadow cabinet reflected a different version of who he was. Um, but uh, it just it seemed to me that he was a little bit, he was picking a side there. Okay, I'll just note that by being, uh, and I'm not condoning in any way, shape, or form the tone of the Pierre Poilievre leadership campaign, which I abhorred, frankly. Uh, but by keeping his attacks on Jean Charest so personal, he kind of avoided the, uh, I, I'm not ever going to be talking to more progressive conservative types because he made it all about Jean Charest and made it really personal, a fake conservative, a guy who served as a liberal premier, etc. Attacks that in the end Jean Charest took home, right? Uh, I thought his attack on uh, Patrick Brown is pretty harsh too, but I, 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 for me, I was wondering if he was going to be modeling everything after the Trump model, right? Where Trump just finds his way to personally demonize and belittle and criticize the others. And I think he did do a, a reasonable amount of that, but I think he's moved away from it now. So, well, he's moved on to uh, this damaging the reputation of people like Dominic Barton and others. We will get to that. Yeah. And we will get to it. I, you know, I don't think he's left the Trump playbook at all. But I, I think he's think so a much more sophisticated Trump playbook that the Polyev team uses. But there's a lot of things in there um, that he uses almost every day, certainly every week. Last point on Aaron O'Toole before we uh, we leave it. Um, 
He doesn't really have a position within the Conservative Party right now, does he? He doesn't. He doesn't have a shadow cabinet role or anything like that. Yes, he, not to have one. I think he asked not to have one, right? Um, so he's basically the former leader who's trying to decide whether he wants to get in or out. And this would seem to indicate. I, you know, I, I, I should say that I, you know, I corresponded with Aaron O'Toole about two weeks ago to talk about whether or not he was ready to come out and do an interview, and he said he still needed a little time. <laughs> well, I, I guess he decided that the time was up, and uh, and Politico uh, did a great job. It's a it's a fascinating interview, and if you you should look at it, uh, just go online to Politico and you can uh, you can see it. Um, okay, let's take our first break, and we'll come back and we'll talk about the. You know, Bruce always says uh, you always preface whenever we discuss polls that you don't like polls and. And here so I'm not going to do that this time. I will not say, in spite of the fact I don't like polls, we're going to talk about the latest well, polls. that you're not going to do that. I know. Uh, I, I, I'm not, yes. not going to say that. Love polls. Catnip <laughs> coming catnip, up. Catnip coming up. Um, okay. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to the Friday episode of The Bridge. Good talk, of course, with Chantel and Bruce. You're listening on Sirius XM Channel 167 Canada Talks or on your favorite podcast platform. <laughs> or you are watching on our YouTube channel. You can get the link at my uh, Instagram or Twitter sites. There's no charge. You can get it free. And uh, you will just be enthralled at the incredible production techniques that we use on the video version of Good talk. All right. Um, well, let's just say what seems increasingly obvious over these last couple of weeks, every poll that comes out shows the Liberals getting hammered by the Conservatives. The Conservatives had, a, you know, a, basically the same lead they had in the last election campaign in terms of voter support, not seat support, but voter support, about three, two, three, four points. It's now suddenly gone up to seven points. Um seven touching approaching eight so that is a substantial lead and clearly it must have some liberals worried pacing the floor at night saying is this it do i start checking my pension numbers now are we toast or does a couple of years change everything how serious is the situation and how worried are they inside chantal Serious, uh, yes, not just because the numbers uh, show uh, uh, a solid conservative lead uh, in voting intentions, uh, but for other sections of that same abacus poll, uh, which I think are even more disquieting for the government, uh, to the question, do you believe that uh, the government is focused enough on cost of living issues which are a daily preoccupation of most Canadians, 75% find that the government is not sufficiently focused on cost of living. 75%, that's a hell of a lot of people who are still saying they'd vote Liberal, but they don't feel the government's priorities are in, on the, in the right place. 66% say not focused enough on health care. Again, those numbers have to include a number of liberals. So yes, um, there there are and there were uh, going into the new year concerns in liberal ranks about where the party was headed. You talked about could another couple of years fix that? One question on everyone's mind is, do we have a couple of years? That's not a given uh, that the NDP will ensure uh, support for the Liberals until 2025. So time may be of the essence. But the the other thing uh, that is, and and that has happened this week, is for many many polls, uh, and including this one, what has been keeping the Liberals in the game really has been that they have a solid solid lead on the Conservatives in Quebec. Uh, and uh, that they that they are hanging on, uh, or they were hanging on to their support. Now, 
And it may look like the usual Quebec storm what happened this week if you're sitting in Ottawa or somewhere else in the country. But this past week, and the debate over the appointment of uh, the, the anti-Islamophobia representative, the person, not the role, has resulted in the biggest Quebec backlash against Justin Trudeau since he has become prime minister. Keep in mind that the SNC-Lavalin story in this province never played in the way that it played outside the province, uh, that people felt that Trudeau was doing his job in this province by protecting a major uh, employer in the province. But this week, uh, it's it's everywhere. It includes mus- leaders of the Quebec Muslim community who are saying, how could you appoint someone who will who who is shown prejudice towards Quebecers uh, in public to that degree as someone who can be part of the solution. Let me just give you a sample because there's a temptation out there to say, oh, it's the nasty bloc Québécois and look at François Blanchet, he's so not nice, or people who love Bill 21. Remember Thomas Mulcair, former NDP leader? lost uh, a lot of ground in an election because he was consistently and unflinchingly uh, against any uh, hint of something that smelled of Islamophobia, the the the, the barbaric tip line uh, of the conservatives, the notion that you would ban uh, veils from uh, uh, swearing in ceremonies. He has continued to be one of the most vocal political figures in Quebec against Bill 21. And this week, in his Montreal Gazette column, he wrote, wrong appointment, wrong appointee, Uh, please go back to the drawing board, uh, because this will only undermine the very cause that this representative is supposed to advance. Quebec Liberal Party, the party that has fought tooth and nail against Bill 21, same reaction, uh, and, and same position, Justin Trudeau's own Quebec ministers, not just his Quebec lieutenant, uh, were up in arms. Why? People are focused on the um, the, the the misappropriation of a poll uh, to advance a point, a poll that showed something uh, that was the opposite of what was written about, i.e., um, that most Quebecers are driven by Islamophobia in their uh, support for Bill 21. Actually, that was not what the poll said. The poll said that people who are uh, Islamophobic like Bill 21. That doesn't make them most Quebecers. But the reason why this won't go away has little to do with that column, and it has to do with something else uh, that is a Twitter comment from the same individual uh, to the assertions that French Canadians uh, suffered discrimination under British rule. The comment was, that assertion just makes me want to vomit. I'm quoting here. You have columns today from the former mayor of Gatineau, to name one. The title is, she throws up on our sufferance, on our suffering. I think if you remove the words French Canadians and put indigenous in the sentence that makes uh, someone throw up, no amount of apologizing would get that person a role as a federal representative of bridge building uh, capacity. And this is where this stands now. The hit is on Trudeau's liberals. And I'm curious to see what happens in the next polls uh, to his Quebec support. Bruce. Uh, well, uh, I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not going to get into that the conversation that Chantal has just been having because I'm not kind of knowledgeable enough about the various undercurrents, and and I and so I kind of accept her her kind of point of view as uh, as one that I want to think about and has read a little bit. But to go back to the the first starting point about the polls, um, I, I do think they are serious uh, for the Liberals. I, I don't think that the you know, terms kind of corkscrewing into the ground, free fall, getting hammered, getting crushed. I think those are all a little bit overstated. Um, Gee, who would have I used those? That, like nobody, nobody, I no right-minded person know, would use those. Uh, <laughs> They're pretty you know, bad numbers. He's in a fighting mood this morning, or Bruce. <laughs> what was that term the liberals know, used I, about I, their I, own situation back in <laughs> 04? What was it? You know, they're swirling around the bottom of the toilet bowl. 
that was pretty bad. In the toilet bowl. That was pretty bad. Well, in an election campaign, if these numbers happened, those words would be uh, perfectly relevant and appropriate, in my view, um, in a 37-day campaign. And there may be an election campaign sooner than the two years that that people have been talking about, as Chantal says, that's true. Uh, my point is only that um, if I wanted to understand these just from the, the standpoint of what does it look like in seat count difference, the difference between this poll and one, two or three weeks earlier is, you know, the, the problem in BC is still a problem in BC for the Liberals, but I don't think that's the right way to, and the Ontario numbers are sort of consistent with what happened before and the Quebec numbers barring some collapse based on what Chantal is saying are not that different from before. But that isn't my point. My point is the Liberals should take these numbers very seriously. They should take them very seriously for a couple of reasons. One is they have uh, the ability to do the things that they want to do and are doing a lot of them and are basically able to spend money on whatever they want to spend money on. And despite all of that, despite all of the latitude that that offers, they're not connecting with people. Not only, so it's it's one thing to look at the number of people who say, I really want a change in government and say, well, that number is not higher than it was in the last two elections. But the more compelling number, I think, for liberals should be the number of people who say, it's really important to me that the liberals get reelected. That number has dropped. And, you know, if you're having a polarization scenario, and you want that to win uh, for it be a, a factor that contributes to victory. You need your end of the poll to be strong and, and growing maybe. And I'm not suggesting that that's the right strategy. I'm just saying the opposite is happening is that support for the liberals is drifting away. It's drifting more to the conservatives and the liberals are not attracting those soft NDP or progressive voters. And in my view, and I tweeted about this yesterday, um, I think a big part of it is, you know, the solution to it isn't to find another 10 policy tools that nobody has thought of before and announce them and expect that the public opinion dynamic is going to change. They've got so many messages on every single day. Nobody really knows what they're about. And when they communicate all of these different messages, They use a tone and a language and a structure that either bores people or alienates people or puts distance between themselves and people. And I know it's fashionable from time to time to say, well, the problem is is comms, not policy. And it's not always true, but comms is a huge problem. Communications is a huge problem for this government. And it's been a problem for a while, and it's getting worse. And so there needs to be more discipline in how they approach the narrowing of the focus, the sharpening of the message, the improvement of the tone, if they're going to be competitive with this leader in the next election campaign. Because we all know uh, what word comes to mind when you say, well, just keep on doing the same things and expecting a different result. And so that's not uh, that's not a recipe. It's just wait for these polls to... Uh, to change back or, you know, come up with another five or 10 ideas that you roll out in the hopes that somehow people will notice those, even though they haven't noticed so many of the other things. Uh, In many cases, very good policy that the Liberals have put in place, but which have failed to attenuate this, this leakage to the Conservatives and failed to do anything to bring soft progressive voters uh, under the Liberal banner. Go ahead. Just to build on that, um, Part of the reason why polls show the Liberals to lack focus on the main issues is not so much that they lack that focus. I'm sure that uh, Christian Freeland is hard at work trying to figure out the way forward uh, that brings, uh, that makes governments part of the solution and not part of the problem to to the cost of living crisis. And I'm convinced that a lot of energy, especially this week, is devoted to the healthcare file. But the multiplicity of messages, uh, a week spent or wasted on uh, the Islamophobia uh, mess of the appointment 
drives home the point to many voters that this is a government that uh, continues to have its eyes not on the ball rather than they are everywhere and they're taking care of everything and they have our backs in the larger sense of the word. What is actually happening is people are saying they keep being focused on things um, that actually don't matter to me in the immediate, in the larger scale of things. They're all over the place, but they're not in the right place. Uh, And at this point, they face a, a, an acute problem in Parliament in that their legislative priorities, if you've looked at them, are completely divorced from healthcare and the economy. They're, it doesn't make them useless bills, but the firearms legislation, messed up as it is, or the new Broadcasting Act, or the new Official Languages Act, they're all interesting. They're, they're interesting conversations, but seriously, they are not the conversations that Canadians are looking for at this point. They can continue to have them, but the central message is that they are fiddling on all those fronts while the economy is burning. It's, and, and basically, what Bruce is saying contributes to that. There's one other thing that... Uh, that uh you know, occurred to me earlier this week, and it's, uh, you know, Chantal highlighted the advocates data that show the, the where people want focus and where they think the liberal government has focus and the and the lack of connection on the cost of living on the economy, on health care is absolutely palpable. Uh, but how government spends money is never very far below the surface, the, the kind of the number of how big the deficit is and what direction it's going in doesn't usually preoccupy people that much. But what does get to preoccupy people is if they think they have a government that doesn't care about whether it's wasting money. And so that story that um, Michelle Rempel Garner put out this week, I'm sure others have covered it about, you know, how the government was paying a lot of money to rent a hotel uh, for COVID quarantine when nobody or virtually nobody was in it sounds like a story of a government that doesn't have somebody whose job it is to watch the spigot and to turn it off when it needs to be turned off. And to the, to the point that we're talking about, about are you in the moment politically that Canadians are in not having an answer to that, even if the answer is ugly, sorry, that happened, shut it down now. We've got somebody in cabinet whose job it is now to look for these things and snuff them out before, um, you know, an AG finds them two years later. Or you got to be on the ball where in the conversation that that people are are having. Otherwise, you will end up with this um, wounding of uh, many, many, many dozens of cuts. Okay, I want to. Uh... Just before we move on to a different segment, I, I want to just go back to something Chantal dropped in her first answer on in this segment, which was the, you know, don't put all your eggs in the basket that the NDP are going to be there, you know, for the next couple of years supporting the government. Is You know, we've said this before, but is there a different tone to it right now? I mean, I, I hear... Um, Jagmeet Singh saying often, you know, we're, we're looking at it, there's certain things we want, we're not getting them, and, uh, you know, nobody should take us for granted. Now, is he saying that because he woke up one morning recently and said, I better start saying that? Or is he getting pressured from within his caucus, within his party, that, you know what, this is not doing us any good? What do we know, or do we know anything on that front? Um, Chantel, you brought, you brought it up, so you can answer. Well, we do know, uh, based on polls, that the NDP would be unlikely to do immensely better and could possibly do worse if an election took place between now and, I don't know, July 1st or the fall, uh, because while the polls do not show at this point that the soft new Democrats could move to the Liberals, they well might if the reality of a majority Poiliev government starts being in the picture of an actual election campaign. Um, I, I, and we also know that many new Democrats are otherwise occupied installing, if they can, a government in Alberta and in Manitoba. So that is basically the calendar year. But I believe that this is the last full year that this parliament will last 
at best. Uh, uh, that Jack Singh has to be saying these things because he has to build a narrative for waking up one morning in 2024 and saying enough is enough. I don't see how the NDP would want to go to an appointed date in 2025 uh, to have an election. So they need to build or give themselves a rationale for pulling the plug on that agreement. It's not an easy job because as you're building it, you're making it harder to justify staying within the confines of that agreement. That being said, on a number of issues that Jagmeet Singh is pushing, I'll take uh, healthcare uh, and private healthcare uh, to ensure the delivery of public services. Should Mr. Singh find that there is a deal with the premiers next week and that does not involve conditions on uh, devolving public delivery of health services to private health care uh, and wants to fight that in the House of Commons. The government can turn to the Bloc Québécois or even the Conservatives for support because any deal that pleases Doug Ford uh, and other Conservative premiers and François Legault is bound to find support across the aisle that is not the NDP. So the, 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 there is room in that agreement for the NDP to fight some of its own chosen battles without breaking the deal. But I, I can't see how that goes beyond 2023. Bruce, uh, your thoughts on it? Yeah, I, I'm pretty much in the same place, although I don't know that I... Uh, I generally think Chantel's right about the timing, but I'd be a little bit more... Uh, who knows, really? Who knows what the end of next year will look like? Who knows what the dynamic will look like? I think Pierre Polyev is a big part of this equation because I think that um, ultimately how progressive voters react to him in the next election campaign will be the most important thing for the NDP and the Liberals. And I don't think we know yet how that will play itself out. I think uh, as of now, I would say that if you're a progressive voter in Canada, of all of the conservative leaders that have been on offer in my lifetime as a voting adult, I can't think of one who would be more worrisome for a progressive voter than Pierre Polyev. He is a flip the table over kind of guy. Uh, and he has said a number of things about how he feels about uh, social issues and the role of government that are far more um, potentially divisive uh, or disturbing anyway for progressive voters than what um, his predecessors are. And now I, I'm I'm looking at Chantal and I'm going she's she's got that name of that one other conservative leader that maybe Stock Day or or what have you that that would be in competition for that or Preston Manning at a certain point in time, but he wasn't the conservative party leader. Anyway, my point is that. Pierre Polyev will be a big factor. On the question of what is what to make of what Jagmeet Singh says now, for me, it's a little bit like you're you're the party leader in the third party in that situation. There's only one song for you to sing, and it's a song that is basically intended to make it say to to say we're relevant, we're we, we're influential. Um, please note our influence, uh, but it. You know, after a while, it sounds like one of those songs that gets in your head and, and and you sort of take it for granted and maybe you wish it would go away, like that Baby Shark song or something like that. It doesn't have the same sense of, trust me, I'm actually going to do this right now. It's more just the noise that you expect in that situation. And so that's what I think it is right now. Okay. Well, time will tell, as I say. <laughs> Very brave of you. I, I always remember my my Way old friend, your, yeah, uh, my old yeah. friend and a somewhat mentor when I got to Ottawa. And both of you two will remember this guy, John Drury, who was this you know flamboyant, flashy former RCAF officer who was a reporter for on Parliament Hill, and he used to get thrown these stories all the time. Uh, where you know one side would say this, one side would say that, and you got to <laughs> reflect both sides. Well, and one day he finally had enough. He did the whole, his whole item, his television item, doing that, saying, you know, here's, here's the conservative, here's the, here's the, here's the liberal, here's the NDPer. And then he came on at the end where you're supposed to sum things up. And he just looked into the camera and he said, 
Who knows? Who really knows? <laughs> John Drury, CBC News, Ottawa. <laughs> Loved it. There's so many stories like that, right? Okay, we're going to take our final break. When we come back, we will talk consultancy. Doesn't that sound exciting? Way we will make it so. Okay, we're back for our final segment of Good Talk for this week. A little coughing in the background. A number of us are suffering the coughs these days. Not sure what that means. Not going to jump to any conclusions. Feeling fine other than a little cough here and there. Um, okay, for the last couple of months, the Conservatives and to some degree the NDP have been threatening to expose the rot of consultancy on the federal government, and they've used Dominic Barton, who is the former managing partner of uh, the McKinsey Group, as an example. And they say, we've got to have a committee hearings. We've got to bring them in. We've got to grill these guys. We know stuff, and then we're going to let it all unfold in these hearings. And you had the impression that when the hearings finally decided to go ahead and Barton was very quick off the mark to say, I'm, I'm happy to come and talk. So the hearings happened this week. And I don't know about you two, but I was uh, severely uh, disappointed with watching the opposition. I mean, they looked like other than calling for the hearings, they had not given much thought to what they wanted to get out of the hearings or what research they had on the subject. They all have research departments, and your money goes to support those research departments. So I don't know what their game plan was, but nobody was left on the floor gasping for air after it was over in terms of the witnesses, at least from what I saw. Certainly not Dominic Barton, who's a pretty smooth character to begin with. Um, but he seemed to handle it all, for the most part, with ease. And we don't seem any closer to saying, okay, something really terrible happened in one of these situations uh, involving Canada, the advice to Canada from consultancies, or really getting to the kind of nub of the question, which is, is there too much money spent on consulting services when, in fact, we have a huge public service, one that's growing, I might add. Every year, it grows a little bigger. So was all this sort of poorly thought out, poorly strategized on the part of uh, the opposition parties? Did they get anything about what they were trying to to accomplish? Um, Bruce, you haven't started one of these conversations, so go for it. We have uh, about eight minutes on this. Well, look, I think that, I, you know, it, it reminded me of the, the adage about in, in law, anyway, in courtroom dramas, never ask the question that you don't know the answer to uh, came to mind. And I think there was a little bit of that. Um, I think at a high level, uh, Mr. Polyev is is trying to make a bit of a meal of saying, you know, high price consultants, that's what the liberals do with your money. And, you know, probably a little bit of that sticks in part because um, the people who are spending the money on consulting services aren't doing much to explain, here's how it saves taxpayer money, the thing that we bought from consulting company X or Y or Z, or here's how it improved um, the functioning of the public service or the delivery of a program. And I think all of those arguments are available. I don't think the money that is spent on these companies is inherently wasteful. I don't think that it is uh, better spent internal to government in many instances. I think that these are organizations that are buying services that are not available within the ranks of the public service because they, um, well, because they require uh, an outside expertise, perhaps. Um, and sometimes because it's uh, about outsourcing functions that you don't really want to hire long-term permanent staff for because you won't need them um, in that way for that long. So I think there are good rational decisions for a lot of these contracts. I think the committee thought that simply by saying Dominic Barton and Justin Trudeau are friends, that this would be you know, some sort of political revelation that would be very damaging to the Liberals. I think Dominic Barton said, we're acquaintances, we're not friends. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I don't know, you know, how much further it can go than that. McKinsey is one of the most successful uh, consulting companies in the world, not without a, an unblem uh, blemish on its record, but 
it hardly is the case that people would say, well, why would you ever hire them to give you advice about X or Y or Z? Yeah, major blemish, but it had nothing to do with Canada uh, at that point. It involved, as you know. Uh, and, uh, and why would they need $100 million from Canada to stay afloat? Or why would Dominic Barton need McKinsey to be getting $100 million to pay for his mortgage, which is probably non-existent in any event? Um, you talked about... Uh, you know, no one was on the floor gasping for air. I would say the, the conservative narrative was a bit in that position after that hearing. That if if the hope was that Dominic Barton would bring a smoking gun to the table uh, that could then be turned on Justin Trudeau in the House of Commons, uh, it didn't pan out in the sense not just because Dominic Barton is able to handle issues like that, but because um, close friends tend to be uh, people that you at least partake a meal with uh, once in a while. I'm not saying exchange Christmas cards because I've never sent you guys any Christmas cards. I think that's going out of fashion. It's not a test of friendship anymore. Uh, but clearly what was, and the reason why the conservatives are so focused on trying to build the narrative that uh, Justin Trudeau is rewarding his friends and liberal insiders is because they're not interested in drawing attention to the fact that Stephen Harper also called for advice uh, on Dominique Barton and also called on consultants in his day, uh, and less so to a lesser degree, but the times and the issues have been different uh, and, and the costs have also been different. What I found ineffective but interesting is how every party brought their own partisan battle to the table, and they were not the same battle. The NDP wants to expand that to the reliance on all consultant services. The rationale for that is really easy. One, it allows them to say liberals and conservatives are both the same, uh, but also it puts them on the same wavelength as the uh, public service unions who dislike uh, the use of consultants. And the Bloc Québécois has a different angle. It wants to go after Dominic Barton and McKinsey and mostly Justin Trudeau for recommendations on immigration that Mr. Blanchet and the Black Québécois argue did not take into account the language uh, picture in Canada and the fact that opening the doors to scores of new immigrants uh, would diminish Quebec's way in the Federation. So it put those three together and you get you know, the kind of session that we watched, which was all over the map and frankly going nowhere. You know, I, I wonder, and I was wondering this week watching this, is how common is this that uh, yeah, that committees, and there are lots of committees, and they're meeting all the time, right? Um, and, and usually with witnesses that they've, you know, demanded or requested to be there. But how ill-prepared are they for these hearings. I mean, we've all been to some of them. I mean, I, when I was a reporter on the Hill, I think I went to public accounts committee all the time, but mainly because of, that was one of the big issues of the day. But, you know, there's lots of other committees uh, hearings and they're usually not attended by journalists. Um, I should be careful saying that. They're, uh, generally, they're not. But, um, you know, I, I, I guess what I'm asking is, are the opposition parties who want witnesses of committees prepared to actually tackle the real issues with them when they get them in there? Because this was not a good advertisement for such a thing. I guess it depends on the on the political cycle. I, I, I think what we saw in committee this week is fairly typical of what we will see on, in Parliament or going forward, and that is the fact that there is a diminishing well of of political cooperation or wanting to tackle complex issues uh, if you can advance partisan interests, because we are in that part of the cycle of a minority parliament. Uh, it's a very short cycle. Uh, that first year, you get to do things. That second year, the well starts to become poisoned. By the third year, you accomplish nothing. We're basically on the way to you accomplish nothing, as long as you can score points off the government on, on perception. Uh, and every government that I have covered that was closer to that, the end of its productivity on that score, has featured those kinds of committees 
on issues that, by the way, we rarely hear about once the election is over. You know, um, I know the system is different, but it, what you've just said is sadly similar to what we witnessed in the last couple of years in the States from both parties in, uh, you know, in committee. And especially so now, it's like so driven by politics and partisanship. Uh, Bruce? Yeah, I, I just wanted to uh, add maybe a couple of things. I think that the Conservatives asked for this hearing, uh, perhaps on the assumption that between when it was decided that they would have it and when they got there, their researchers would show up, would turn up, would help them reveal some really important kind of fact-based that nobody else had seen before, that would be shocking to people, that would be an insinuation of some sort of corruption involving the prime minister and his friendship. And the fact that they didn't have any of that um, is partly a, a function of the fact that when they asked for the hearings, they didn't really think there was anything there. They were just, you know, doing it because what else can you do at some point between saying we want, you know, a few rounds with a high-priced consulting leader and maybe some others. Um, but the, the level of preparation was uh, was not great. Uh, but I think partly that's true because the fact base isn't great. Anybody who thinks that these contracts are given out on the basis of not much process and a lot of favoritism isn't paying attention to the process these days. And I definitely agree with Chantal's point about the NDP wanted to reinforce their relationship with the public sector unions. Everybody has an agenda, right? They all uh, go into these different things with the... Uh... A number of agendas. One, trying to assume, I assume, seek the truth, and the other to back up their own, their own agenda in terms of what uh, what works for them in terms of their party and their future. Okay, we're going to leave it at that for this week. Um, Chantel and Bruce, as always, thank you so much. Look forward to uh, to next week and the continuing excitement surrounding. But no our, Christmas card this year again. Right? I know. I I was going to bring that up, but I I felt. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's been a long time for some of us, but I still I still get cards and it's always pleasant to read them. But I just don't send Good. it, which is bad. Okay, Bruce, thank you, Chantel, thank you. Have a great weekend, and out there, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. We'll talk to you all again on Monday. Mm-hmm.